having me. It's a great privilege to be here and to share from the God's Word. So, before I jump into the main passage, one second. So today I'm, I've prepared from Luke 14, verse 15 to 24. And here, Jesus is giving a parable to a group of people. And so to fill you in where he's at, why he's here, why he's here in this first place, is he has been going around from various villages uh, preaching the gospel. And here he is at, with a group of Pharisees and lawyers. One of the leaders of the Pharisees has invited him to dine with him. And so at this table, the Pharisees and the lawyers are watching carefully what Jesus is doing. And then earlier in the chapter, Jesus heals during Sabbath. And of course, the Pharisees and the lawyers are against it because it's counted as works. And on Sabbath, you're not supposed to work. And so they're watching him closely. And while they're dining, Jesus notices something. There's just there's a game going on. There's politics at the dinner table. So it's... Um, as according to custom, the guests of honor are seated at certain places, and it's a hierarchical uh, honor society. And so at this dinner table, he's noticing how the host has all these elite of the elites at his dinner table, and there are guests trying to see who is going to be seated at the honor table and who's going to be seated at what, at what hierarchy. They're all paying this close attention. And it is at this table where Jesus is telling them in verse 11 to 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so what is Jesus teaching at this dinner table? Don't try to benefit while you're, while you're here on earth. Invite those that cannot repay you, that can't give you any favor in return. He's seeing the selfish hearts of the host who is trying to um, get all these elite of the elites at his table, and the host there just having the, trying to have the privilege. And so it is in this context that a man, either a Pharisee or a lawyer, cries out or responds to Jesus' teaching and says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So now we are turning to the main passage, Luke 14, 15 to 24. When one of those who reclined at, at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread the kingdom, in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet he sent, sorry, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, 
and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So, in verse 15, as I've mentioned, this either Pharisee or lawyer says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if this man responded with sincere heart or whether he was just being cynical or sarcastic. I don't know what his intention was. But one thing we know is he was dining with the Pharisees and with the lawyers, and there might have been a change in his heart where he was listening to Jesus, and he was, he's, he was being genuine. I mean, the statement itself is true. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Luke, the author, he uses the word but to introduce Jesus' teaching. And so here we can, um, here Jesus is, is seeming to question what do you mean by everyone? Everyone who will eat bread. But who are you talking about? The Pharisees seem to be naturally including himself in the kingdom of God. And so when a, whenever a Bible uses a conjunction like but, we have to pay attention what's happening. So Jesus is about to introduce something that is contrary or whatever something um, the Pharisee had in mind. He's introducing something contrary. So Jesus says, but he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had, who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. And now there will be a series of excuses. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And the second excuse is, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And the third excuse I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Well, the slave of the host is not showing up at, the, at their door last minute out of the blue, just giving, sending out invitation to last minute. They have been already invited. And so they've been notified ahead of time. They have accepted the invitation. Now that's, now that's when it's the time for the banquet, they are declining the invitation one by one. So in this parable, the banquet represents the kingdom of God. And the people, who are the people in this parable that, are, that have been invited already? It is the Jews. And he is talking to specifically to the elite of the elites among the Jewish society, the leaders of the Jewish society. And of course, I mean, they expected themselves to be in the kingdom of God. And the Jews themselves they commonly would have thought that they were part of the kingdom of God because they were the chosen nation. I mean, 
all the way back to Genesis, God is making covenant with Abraham. He's co making covenant with Isaac, Jacob, with David. And throughout the Psalms and throughout the prophets, there's talk about how God remembers the covenant that he has made with his people. He spares them. He doesn't destroy them because he remembers the covenant that he has made with them. And the people themselves, we're like, we are the covenant family. We are the chosen nation that will be part of the kingdom of God. And so, for example, in Exodus 6, 5, when Israel was held as slaves in Egypt, it says, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Or in Leviticus 26, 42, Then I, have, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But here, Jesus is saying, you think you'll be in the kingdom of God, but being born a Jew doesn't guarantee that you'll be dining at the table with our Lord. Galatians 4, 4-5, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. The Jews rejected Christ when he appeared in the fullness of time. Christ was born in the human flesh. At the right time, at the right moment that God has planned, Christ was born in human form, and the Jews have rejected him. I mean, he has been prophesied for millennia that the Messiah would come to shed blood for the sins of the people. And here, we have the master who says, come for everything is now ready. And after long work of the preparing the banquet, the fullness of time of the banquet has come. And that's when these people in the parable, they're rejecting the banquet. We don't show up at, uh, according to what's convenient for us. We show up when, at the time when the host has set the time. The feasting and when all these things is happening is according to the will of the host. And maybe we might think, oh, in this parable, it's just maybe being rude. Maybe I'm taking a bit too much. I mean, it's not like they're showing hostility. They're just declining the invitation. But here, Jesus is speaking in terms of the banquet, and I think it's important to understand what significance and influence a banquet has in society like that. Um, I, I think we have moved away from these culture to a much, of a, much more of an individualistic society. But culture, in these culture like this, inviting to a meal is significant. We have wedding that we perceive it as to be an expensive event that lasts for a couple of hours. But ancient Israel back then, they had their weddings uh, up to a week, like seven days they would have wedding. And even today, it's still happening today. I mean, one of my Indian friends had to fly back to India to have his own wedding. And his wedding lasted for three days, and then almost 1,000 people showed up from his village. Right? We'll talk about expensive. And culture around food 
around meal, sharing the meal is very important. And especially we can see this in the Old Testament. For example, we see the ceremonial feasts like Passover meal. We have uh, the covenant. When covenants are being made, we see examples in the Bible after, uh, after two parties have made this contract, this covenant, they share a meal together. You have peace offering, and you have in the uh, vision in the prophets about the banquets they will have with God. For example, in Isaiah 25, 6, it says, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And we see, again, meals in the New Testament as well. Something we did, the communion meal, Lord's Supper, um, Book of Acts, whenever they gathered together, they broke bread. And Jude, he also mentions in his letter, the love feast, we, which we understand it to be a communal meal that the churches did in the early church as well. And so it's not that we have completely lost the meaning of meal and banquet. I mean, here we have Thanksgiving dinner. Um, so we still do retain this importance of having this meal, but we have to understand um, there's a reason why Jesus is giving type of, this type of parable. And in, rejecting an invitation like this is not just a matter of being rude, but it is actually a great offense to the host. Especially you have been given a notice ahead of time. And so no wonder in verse 21, the master of the household was angry. So meal, social gather. I mean, this type of banquet is more than um, social occasion. It's more than networking. It's more than just taking the nourishment. This is, a, this is a peak of a society of enjoyment, entertainment, and nourishment. It's a crossroads crossroads of culture, politics, and economy. So Jesus says that the man who prepared the banquet invited many in verse 17 and 18. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. So this is what the kingdom of God is like. God is a God who invites many to come to his banquet, to eat, to dine, and he has prepared heavenly things for those who he has invited. And it's a place of great pleasure, enjoyment. You'll be served, you'll be filled. It's a place where you can lay down your burdens and be nourished. God invites many. Now, this story is not just for the Jews. This is very much a story about us as well. And so we are invited. Um, I mean, they are people that have been invited to have the lavish banquet. Many of us are invited to have this lavish banquet. And so it is safe to assume it's that many of us have grown in Christian homes, in Christian culture, in churches, hearing the gospel. And many of us would say we profess to be Christians. And like the Jews who assume that they would be part of the kingdom of God, we also naturally assume, yeah, I'm going to be in the kingdom of God. I profess to be Christian. 
I mean, my grandmother is a Christian, my father is a Christian, my sister is a Christian, my aunt is a Christian, I'm a Christian too, I profess to be a Christian, why wouldn't I be in the part of the kingdom? But there are people out there who do not have churches, who do not have the gospel, they don't have anyone to preach the gospel to them, they don't even have the scripture, and we take all these things for granted. And so, I want to give two warnings. First, don't be a Pharisee. Remember, this is being taught to the Pharisees. And second, don't make excuses. And I'm going to elaborate on those two points. So first, don't be a Pharisee. What are the Pharisees known for? They knew the Scripture. They have high knowledge of Scripture. I mean, they memorized everything. But those people who do have knowledge will be judged accordingly. And those people who have the high knowledge of the Scripture and the knowledge of God, they were condemned by Jesus. And if that knowledge of God and knowledge of the Scripture does not humble you, God will humble you at the seat of judgment. Another thing they're known for, material wealth. Well, are we, do we take pride in giving more money to the church comparatively to others? Or are we the type of people that is like 10.0000%? I will give exactly to the church, and I'm satisfied. I mean, th that's what Pharisees were known for. In the eight woes of the Pharisees, that was one of the um, condemnation that the Pharisees have received by Jesus. It's like, you're cutting exactly... 10%, you tithe that exact amount, but that violates the heart of the commandment. The commandment is to give joyously and to give generously, right? And another thing they're known for is for their piousness. They pray long prayers. They memorize the scripture. But in reality, they were hypocrites and full of false humility. I mean, Jesus says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And when they're fasting, they just make, yourself, they make themselves look miserable to announce that they are fasting. Overall, we have to examine our hearts. As John Calvin famously says, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Besides all this pious knowledge and pious life practice, there are many other gifts God has blessed us with small, big, and there could be things like setting up chairs in a church that could be our idolatry. Well, how? If you're someone who's setting up the chairs, you might think, woe is me for I'm suffering by these little duties I have to do. Or you might think, um, contra uh, contrary, you might say, look how humble I am. I'm, set I'm the one who's doing the service and setting up these chairs. What a privilege it is for the church to have me, a humble servant. Regardless, whatever it may be, we can take all these things as idolatry. We, those things get to our pride and false humility. And second thing, uh, the second warning about making excuses is... Um, they seem to have all really good reasons. 
So in verse 18, what's the first man's excuse? He has bought a piece of land. A land is wealth, it's inheritance, right? I mean, when Israelites were conquering Canaan, Caleb was rewarded with land. And there's a promise by God to Israel that they'll have the land of Canaan. And it's owning land is wealth. And the second excuse is the five yoke of oxen. And one yoke of oxen requires two oxen to plow a large field, and you have five of them. If we were to compare to today's kind of farming equipment, large, brand new farming equipment can cost easily up to half a million dollars. And to have five yoke of oxen that requires 10 oxen to plow the field, I mean, that's not, a, not, that's not insignificant. The third excuse, I don't know if we might be able to relate to that a bit more, is the newlywed man. He's in the honeymoon phase, right? And so maybe some say, well, give him a break. He's newly married. Or on the other hand, you might say, so what? You can still come to the banquet. He's newly married. He needs to fulfill his duties. But there's a commandment from God about the newlywed man in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24.5. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any public, other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. That's a good excuse to stay at home. But we have, when we examine these excuses one by one, they actually, they're really laughable and pitiful. So, for example, you have been given notice that you are invited. And that's the time when you're going to examine your land and your oxen, the, right at the time when you're invited. Or, I mean, it's the same thing, goes spending time with your wife. Or what stupid people buys a land and buys yoke of oxen without examining first? I mean, when you look at here, they're all in the past tense. They have bought the land, they've bought the oxen, I mean, the yoke of oxen. And then they're going to examine after they've bought it. <laughs> and the newly married man doesn't even excuse himself. He just says, I can't come. He doesn't even excuse himself. And it's, interestingly enough, these three excuses are very much happening in our daily lives. I mean, we can categorize into three different excuses. So one, the land, well, what does it represent? Wealth, possession. Yoke of oxen, what does, it, what does that represent? Is the vocation. And third, wife, it's our relationships. How much are we trying to protect our wealth? And it doesn't really have to be a big scale of all your inheritance. It could be small things in our daily lives. Like, for example, I, throughout high school and college, I was very stingy. I went to all the free events to get pizzas. And I was very protective of my pocket change at the cost of being generous and hospitable of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Or how often do we prioritize our vocation over our church? When we move to a new location, is it because of the church? 
or is it because of better opportunity, whether it's school or job? We have to think about those things. Um, but I was, I am, ever since moving to Trinity, and to Bloomington in general, I have been actually very encouraged to get to know people at Trinity Reformed Church and here at Bloomington Bible Church, because there are people who have sacrificed a lot to serve the church. And I'm very encouraged by that, and maybe some of you are not aware of who those people might be, but there are people who do sacrifice a lot to serve the church. But regardless, what I'm saying is, when we're choosing our location and our vocation, it should be based on the church. But what is more important? Is it your spiritual health? Or is it the cost of your spiritual health that you want to pursue other things? Your family, your children, they need to be nourished. They need to be spiritually nourished. And we can't sacrifice those things. Or what other sacrifice do we make because of relationship? It could be as simple as hanging out with friends and missing out weekly church gatherings. Or how many people skip Sunday service on Super Bowl Sunday, right? When my family moved to the United States, uh, it was Christmas, Eve, uh, Christmas Sunday service, and we drive up to a church, and we all stand there at the door, locked. And we're like, what's happening? Isn't it Sunday? It is Sunday, and we all see a poster that says, oh, you're better off spending time with your family. We're like, oh, what is this? Seeing empty chairs on Super Bowl Sundays, I mean, those things really confused us. When I was attending church in Germany, it was an international church, and we had people from various backgrounds, various culture. We had people who were part of underground church in China. We had people that came to faith through blood and tears. We had Muslims that, had, that just showed up out of nowhere and said, well, I, I dreamed about Prophet Isa or Jesus. I don't know what to do with that. And people came to faith like that. And for us, the, the height of our weekly, monthly, and yearly gathering was the gathering of the church because they knew how precious it was to gather together because they knew the cost of what it meant to be a Christian and to meet freely without intervention by the government, without persecution, and that's a great privilege. These people in this parable, they are not like people in Matthew 21, where there's another parable like Jesus, where the workers in the field are killing the slave that the master is sending. They are not showing some kind of violent contempt, retaliation, but they're just rejecting. And so maybe you think, ah, oh, at least they're not being hostile. Like I said, their excuses are laughable and pitiful. And if they, honest, they, if they spoke their mind with honesty, they would have said, no, I don't want to come. Excuse making is ancient as mankind itself. All the way back to Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they were tempted to hide and they covered themselves with fig leaves they, because they felt naked and vulnerable and shameful. 
And we are always, we will always be tempted to hide and to make excuses. And because without excuse, we feel vulnerable. We feel naked. But it is always better to be honest. If you don't believe in the gospel, just say, I don't believe in the gospel. If there's a grace in you, and you'd say, well, there's a sin in my life, and if people find out, they will run away from me. But it is better to be honest than to hide and run away. A double-tongued man is better than to be a double-tongued man who disguises himself in sheep's clothing. And a patient is better off telling his doctor about his symptoms than hiding it. J.C. Ryle, a quote from J.C. Ryle is, it is not avowed dislike to the gospel which is so much to be feared. It is that procrastinating, excuse-making spirit which is always ready with a reason why Christ cannot be served today. And at this moment, um, there might be some of you who have the same excuse to reject the invitation to come to Christ. And I don't know what you're running away from, and uh, it might be because you don't want to grow in godliness, because that means it's fighting sin. And you're running away from fighting sin. Maybe you are running away from certain responsibilities. Another quote from J.C. Ryle. Infidelity and immorality no doubt slay their thousands, but decent, plausible, smooth-spoken excuses slay their tens of thousands. No excuse can justify a man in refusing God's invitation and not coming to Christ. So a lot of examples that I gave you is in the immediate context. The church here represents a banquet. It is a fellowship of believers. We share a communion meal together. But Jesus brings us to a larger picture because he's talking about in eternity. He's talking about the banquet we have with God in eternity. And so you have been preached to you, the gospel, every Sunday. You who have been invited to the banquet of heaven, are, there, are, are you there to commit yourself to Christ? Or are you going to be like Pharisee, who has all the right words to say and right gestures to make, but you are full of deceit, pride, and greed? Are we an excuse maker who has one foot to satisfy the lusts of the world and the other foot to satisfy the church members. There's a Korean idiom that says, trying to catch two, rabbit, two rabbits at once, you lose all. You can't satisfy both lusts, your lusts and God. At the cost, there's a cost of being a disciple. And if you look at the rest of the chapter 14, he finishes with the cost of discipleship. When we grow up in Christian household, we grow comfortable, fat, and lazy, and we become like the very Pharisees that Jesus is condemning. And in verse 21 says, the master of the house became angry. In verse 24, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And it is a serious warning. On one hand, being at the banquet means that that you'll be comforted, there'll be joy and nourishment. On the other hand, being cut off from the banquet means eternal torment and damnation, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, 
who are the ones that are being invited? Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. Here what Jesus, the people that Jesus is referring to, is what the Jews would have been perceived, uh, would have regarded as the scums of the society. They're the people that would have been disregarded. I mean, even, even children. So in, among, uh, according to um, Jewish teaching, um, Mishnah Abbot, it says, talking to a child ruins a man. Um, I, I'm trying to remember whether it's in the same Mishnah Abbot, but that there's a first century rabbi who teaches uh, that he would rather burn Torah, the word of God, rather than handing off to a woman. That was a first century teaching. Well, we have Jesus. Disciples were trying to keep the children away, but here's Jesus rebuking the disciples so that he can bless the children. And he, he is spending time with married a prostitute, and the first two witnesses of the empty tomb were two women. I mean, what is Jesus here doing? But also, Jesus is bringing the picture of the Gentiles to come to the banquet. And so it's very clear that God has strong heart for the lost. And we can talk about God's sovereignty, but we can't be standoffish. It's like, well, I'm going to trust you, God, that you will regenerate the hearts of men, and I'm going to give you all the work of evangelism. We can't be that way. We can't ignore God's strong desire to seek out the lost. He wants people to come to the feast. And if you look at chapter 15, it's talking about his heart for the lost, seeking out the lost. The coin, the sheep, uh, prodigal son. And so when we read from verse 14 where he mentions that um, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. He is sending out the slave to bring in all the people who cannot return anything, who can't give anything in return. People are compelled to come in. The compelling is, here is a very strong language, compel. A lot of the people um, use the word, substituted the word force because it was just a, that strong language. Compel them to come in. Persuade them, convince them to come. If they're lame, carry them with you. Are they blind? Then hold by their hand and guide them with you. Compel. It's the expression of the utmost urgency and desire. And I think Spurgeon uses the word, bring them in gentle violence. <laughs> so we are the very poor, crippled, lame, and blind. Is there anything we can offer to God? Well, we come in empty hands. And if there's like one thing I want you to get out of my sermon is that you see yourself helpless and in complete need before God. I mean, imagine all these people that are outcast of the society, they cannot be part of the society, they're sitting in the street corners or in front of the temple begging for coins. They're covered in dirt, lice, body odor. And then you have 
someone sent from a nobility or a king to dine with you in a banquet. I don't know if you think that you will jump right up and say, yeah, I want to join that. But I would imagine that they would feel hesitant to come. They would feel guilty, ashamed, just like we feel tempted to hide in the fig leaves like Adam and Eve did when they sinned. And we feel the same way. Sometimes we actually feel hesitant to come to church or to come before Christ because we know there is sin in our lives and we feel guilty and we feel ashamed. But guess what? That's actually the more reason why you should come. That is the very reason why God invites us sinners who can give nothing in return. He says, come lay your burdens on me and rest. Eat and drink and be comforted. And that is also the more reason why we should go out and compel others to come to the banquet because it's the heart of God to invite many. We were the ones who have been invited. And so we should know what it's like. Should be also in the position knowing that Christ has died for our sins and has given us eternal life compel others to come to church as well. Um, remember the parable of rich man and Lazarus? The rich man is an eternal torment and he sees Father Abraham and asks him, my five brothers who are alive, please warn them that they may not come to hell. That's what he's pleading. And Abraham responds, they have, they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them. And the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham responds, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should arise from the dead. The rich man, the Pharisees, on, uh, during the time of Jesus, they had the full scripture of Old Testament. We have something better. They had the full testament that, uh, that the prophets have prophesied that Christ will come, they have rejected him then. We have something better that testifies the work of Christ, the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. The whole gospel has been witnessed and preached to us. And this is the very invitation that this God is sending us. So will you come to the banquet? Will you accept the invitation? And will you stop making excuses why you can't come? So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. While we are still sinners, Christ died so that we may have eternal life. And through him, we are invited to the banquet to enjoy him forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have sent your son to die for our sins. And there is so much guilt and shame and sins in our lives that we want to hide away or we think we know better, and we start making excuses. And it's not even good excuses. We make, we try to please the people around us so that we are not offensive, and we think making excuses will somehow solve everything. Father, please break down these thoughts. Let us be honest and come before you recognizing that we are helpless and in complete need of the gospel. May we come and accept the invitation to come to the banquet 
you have a heart for the lost. You have such a great heart for all the people, the sinners who cannot give anything in return. So, Father, please convict us of our sin that we may see our need of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.